Joining us today is environmentalist and attorney Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an organization committed to advancing the legal rights of nature and environmental rights. He is also co-founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the contemporary community rights and rights of nature movement, which have resulted in the adoption of several hundred laws across the United States and around the world. He is on the board of advisors of the New Earth Foundation. He is cum laude graduate of Widener Law School and has thrice received their Public Interest Law Award. He is licensed to practice in Pennsylvania and is a recipient of the Pennsylvania Farmer Union's Golden Triangle Legislative Award. He is admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court, the third, fourth, eighth, and 10th Circuit Courts of Appeals and the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. And he currently resides in Spokane, Washington. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Mother Jones, and The Nation. And he was named in 2007 as one of Forbes Magazine's top 10 revolutionaries. And in 2018, he was named one of the top 400 environmentalists in the last 200 years in the American Environmental Leaders Encyclopedia. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Yeah, good to be with you, Zero. So uh, why don't we start with a little bit of your background, how you became environmentally conscious, and what brought you to study and practice law? Sure. So I guess we can start way back in terms of my upbringing, but uh, my parents are uh, biology professors at universities and operated a kind of animal refuge facility for a number of years in Alabama, which is where I was born, and Virginia, where I was basically spent my uh, high school years. And uh, so I think just a appreciation of life, appreciation of other life forms that growing up in an environment like that, it's tough to do anything else, I think, as a career. Uh, my brother's a, a veterinarian in North Carolina, so we both kind of took a career path that involved, you know, either animals or protecting the environment or doing the legal work that we do. But for about 10 years, I practiced convention, what I refer to lovingly now as conventional traditional environmental law, which basically means trying to enforce this patchwork of regulations and laws that we have in the United States that ostensibly were adopted to protect the natural environment. And so for, for about a decade, I represented about 100 different community organizations across the state of Pennsylvania that were targeted for things like frack wastewater injection wells or uh, factory hog farms or toxic waste incinerators, you know, all the hundreds of different single issue projects that communities face off against every day in the United States and around the globe. And most of that work had me representing these groups in front of you know, zoning hearing boards and administrative law judges and sometimes in federal court. But it was all trying to enforce these national environmental laws that most people think are there to actually protect the natural environment. But in reality, those laws actually operate just as negotiation zones for corporations to come in, basically shave some of the rough edges off whatever project they're considering a placement into that community, and then moving forward with the project anyway. And so even though we would win what I refer to as skirmishes on the, on the outside of some of these battles in terms of setbacks, you know, how many feet do you have to be back from a school if you're going to put in a factory farm? 
uh, or parts per million, whatever you can emit into the air, to the water as allowed or legalized by those federal and state environmental laws. We were basically in the trenches dealing with that kind of stuff. And after about 10 years of watching almost the complete failure of those federal and state environmental laws provide any kind of protection whatsoever for the communities that we were representing, that we decided to, to switch gears and do something else because it seems that the conventional traditional environmental law today is really about battling over those parts per million, how much a community is gonna get poisoned or polluted, not whether they're going to get poisoned or polluted at all. And so we came kind of to our own understanding of how the industry, the environmental legal industry is set up, who it actually serves, and uh, started to try to do something different other than do that work. So that's kind of a, how I ended up in the, in the work that we do today. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people do have that blind trust in these supposed agencies that ostensibly are looking out for us. But things like the Flint, Michigan problem with their water has made it a little more conscious to people that it's not necessarily a, a bulwark to count on. Absolutely. I think in some ways it's natural that people rely on agency regulators and in fact, their own elected officials to do stuff to help them because that's our model of representative democracy is that we hire the best people. I mean, that's the myth. You know, we hire them through elections and agency regulators are supposed to be looking out for the communities themselves. But the real clients generally, or should I put it this way, that the laws underneath which those agencies operate are generally written by the largest corporations in the biggest industries in the United States. Because at the table, you know, you don't have communities sitting at the table when these regulations get negotiated or the laws controlling what the regulations can do. And so it's kind of a farce to believe that we have anything close to a democratic system operating when the largest actors around the table at the legislature are, you know, chemical waste management and, uh, you know, uh, gas companies and uh, other agribusiness corporations like Smithfield Foods or Hatfield Foods, those are the folks that you have continuously in that cycle who are writing the laws underneath which we operate. And then we as kind of like subordinate little mice are running around trying to enforce those legal requirements that have been put in place by the very industries that we're attempting to fight. So it kind of shouldn't come as a surprise, I think, to most that things are worse now from an environmental perspective than things were 40 years ago when the major environmental laws were passed, simply because we're not at the controls. We're not driving anything. We're on the receiving end. And so everything we do is defensive. And anybody that plays plays chess or any other strategic game knows that if you're always on the defensive, you're going to lose. And unfortunately, when we lose, our communities lose with us as well as the natural environment. Yeah, and I guess another layer of the issue is between the state and the local community. I know that uh, when local communities have tried to do things like ban the CAFOs, the confined animal feeding operations in their town or in their county, that sort of been captured at the state level to uh, not allow them to do that. Yeah, I think it's uh, you raise something that I don't think a lot of people understand. And in fact, we didn't understand, you know, first six or seven years of, of legal practice, which is that our communities, and when we say community, we're generally talking about our city, our village, our town, our township, our borough, whatever the municipal geographic unit is uh, that, you know, we elect people to local government, 
Uh, those are the municipal geographic units. We, I don't think a lot of us understand that those units are completely controlled by the state government, that the state government has plenary or almost complete authority over what our community can and can't do from a law passage standpoint. So if, if my city or village wants to pass a law banning factory farms, in the example that, that you raised, the, the, the question becomes, is the municipality allowed to pass that law banning factory farms? And when courts review that situation, they look to state law and say, well, does state law allow the municipality to ban factory farms? And the answer to that generally in every state at this point in the US is no, because the state has passed regulations that regulate the operation of those factory farms at the local level. And that's been read by courts to mean that the state has exclusive uh, authority to regulate and control. And because the local community, if they ban a factory farm, that factory farm corporation can't have a permit to operate from the state while at the same time being banned by the municipality from operating where it wants to operate. It becomes a conflict between the two. And when the court looks at the conflict, they automatically override the municipality with the state. And so in terms of local democratic control, it's safe to say that we almost have none because the state defines what that, what that scope of local control is. And you'll see it in real time as well. If the state doesn't have a law in place and a municipality moves forward to ban something at the local level, sometimes the state legislature will in real time write a law to prevent what just happened at the municipal level. And a lot of people will say, well, they can't do that. The, the, my city passed it first and the state can't come in after the fact and overturn it. Well, yes, they can. That's the system we live under. It's not, it's not a democratic system. It's not really a democracy at the local level. If you have something that's harming you, and you want to ban it, you actually have to ask for permission to ban it from the state. If this, you know, and the situation is that on almost all heavily regulated big industry issues like factory farms or fracking, energy extraction, uh, you know, everything running to toxic waste incinerators, waste management, water withdrawals, uh, some in some states, timber cutting or conservation of timberlands. Basically, all of those big ticket items, the corporations have gotten to first, and they've written the laws to legalize what they want to do, and that legalization framework is then written into state law. So when our communities say, well, geez, that toxic waste incinerator is going to poison us, and we want to ban it because we should have a right to protect our health, safety, and welfare from that thing coming in, the answer is you don't right now. You don't unless you seize it somehow. And that's what's exciting. I think a lot of communities in the US have said, we're not going to accept that status quo of just laying down and letting the state government controlled by these industry kind of puppet masters uh, control what we can and can't do to protect ourselves at the local level. So we're gonna move forward and do it anyway. It's kind of like a, a civil disobedience movement that says we're not gonna follow this structure of law because it's anti-democratic. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting things happening right now in the U.S. and, of course, other places. But here, people coming to the realization that they're not protected, they shouldn't have to beg their agency regulators to protect them, and they certainly shouldn't have to control the state government to be able to have the scope to protect themselves. And so people are pushing back against that. And I think that's a very healthy thing. WFHB Firehouse Broadcasting is Indiana's first community radio station located in Bloomington, Indiana.
WFHB recognizes the indigenous communities native to this region as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. WFHB acknowledges and honors the Miamiaki, Lenape, Bodewadmik, and Sawanwa peoples. The anglicized versions of their names are the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee tribes on whose ancestral homelands Bloomington, Indiana was built. We encourage everyone to engage with contemporary native communities, to learn the histories of this land, to consider who does and does not have access to its resources, and to examine one's place, abilities, and obligations within a process of reparative work that is necessary to promote a more equitable and socially just society. Do you want to say anything about some of the earliest cases, things to do with standing in, in court or personhood for non-human entities? Yeah, so as, as folks and communities have been pushing back on this concept of being controlled, basically, by this higher system of law that replaces their values with the values of the industry leaders who are seeking to do X, Y, and Z in their community, there, there came a similar recognition that not only are we controlled as human beings to protect our own rights. So if we take steps to protect our own health, safety, and welfare and other rights like to sustainable agriculture and other things that we feel that we have, but that also that nature itself under this system of law that we have is, is basically treated as property, that you can buy and sell ecosystems. We, we don't think about it that way a lot of times. We think about you know, a five-acre piece of land that we own, but that five-acre piece of land has ecosystems on it that don't just begin and end at those uh, parcel uh, edges either. And so nature has been treated as property under this Western system of law that we have for, for thousands of years. It's the bedrock of this system of law that people have rights, nature is property, and of course, we all remember that women used to be property and African-Americans used to be property in the 1800s uh, and still to some extent today with the remnants of those systems. But that this concept that nature is property means that the more nature you own, the more you can legally destroy. So you know what you learn in law school and folks know as well is that uh, property ownership is a bundle of sticks. And one of the sticks in that bundle is the right to destroy whatever you own. That's part of ownership. In addition to excluding others from using it, one of the one of the sticks is to just you can destroy the property that you have legally. And so in the U.S., we've tried to build an environmental protection system based on this property ownership view of nature and ecosystems. And I think the most exciting work happening in the U.S. and in fact around the world right now is this rights of nature concept that nature itself, ecosystems, rivers, forests, mountains, should actually have rights of their own. And it kind of bends our brains sometimes to think about nature having rights because we're used to you know, the, the US Bill of Rights, which recognizes free speech rights and right to practice religion of our choice and other rights contained within that US Constitution Bill of Rights. In addition, all of our states have a Bill of Rights. We sometimes forget that too, but those Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights are all based on human rights, uh, that rights accrue to us as people, as persons, just by fact of being human. Uh, 
when we think about rights of nature, we're actually talking about transforming nature from being rightless as property under the system that we have now to being rights-bearing, almost a civil rights-type protections for nature. So what would it look like if a river had a right to flow? Would that mean that damming the river is illegal uh, because it violates the right of the river to flow? What does it mean for the, the right of a uh, forest to exist and flourish, kind of these constitutional standards? Does that mean that projects that would clear cut the forest or damage the ecosystem in other ways, would that make those activities illegal? And the answer is yes. It's basically a constraint on human activity by creating or recognizing rights for those natural systems or ecosystems. Just like with humans, if we have human rights, activities that happen that violate those rights, we have a legal solution to that, a remedy. Ideally, it doesn't always happen this way, of course, but when someone violates your rights, you can go into court uh, if you have the means uh, and sue to actually enforce those rights. What this rights of nature movement is talking about is basically that nature ecosystems would have certain rights. They're not the same rights as humans. Obviously, free speech doesn't apply or equal protection or due process. Those are human concepts or the right to vote. But concepts like the right to exist, kind of like a right to life for an ecosystem, a right to flourish, a right to thrive, uh, a right to restore itself in case there's a damage, uh, human-caused damage, a right to restoration. Uh, these, these types of remedies and types of rights that can be assigned or recognized on behalf of these ecosystems of nature. And the most exciting thing is that a lot of times we just talk about ideas, but this idea has come to fruition. And the fruition that it's come to uh, has been back in 2006, the first community in the US passed a rights of nature law. It was a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just northwest of Philadelphia. It makes me feel old most days, but I actually wrote that law back in 2006. It was the first rights of nature law to be adopted by a municipality in the world, uh, recognizing that waterways within that community had certain rights to exist and flourish and be restored, those types of constitutionally based rights. And then to our surprise, I think that the model kind of morphed from that little community in Pennsylvania to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, we were called down to help with the drafting of the new Ecuadorian constitution. And it was the first time that this concept of rights of nature was written into a national constitution, which was then ratified by the people of Ecuador. There have now been a bunch of cases litigated, uh, the most famous one, I think, coming down only a couple months ago, which protected a, a forest preserve within Ecuador from mining permits uh, that had been issued that would violate the rights of that forest preserve to exist and thrive and the other standards that are within, within the Ecuadorian constitutional law. In addition to Ecuador, you have Bolivia that passed the rights of Mother Earth law. Uh, Panama recently signed a national law just a couple of weeks ago, uh, recognizing rights of nature in the country. It, it's going to come into effect after a year. That's how national legislation exists within Panama. There are courts in India, courts in Colombia, uh, and uh, local laws being passed in places like Brazil, uh, as well as other countries. And in the U.S. today, uh, there are three dozen communities, both tribal governments as well as municipal governments across the United States that have passed these rights of nature laws. I think it's the new kind of uh, trend. It's the emerging new environmental law paradigm that's eventually going to supplant or augment the existing environmental 
kind of regulatory patchwork that we have now that deals with nature as property. And I think where people in general have any familiarity with the ideas to do with corporate personhood, was was that kind of in the works before the Citizens United, which I think was a couple of years after what you were accomplishing, was your type of personhood for entities of nature, did that precede or was that in parallel to corporate personhood? Yeah, so whereas our brains kind of explode when we talk about rights for nature, we don't seem to have any problems with things like rights for corporations. <laughs> and in fact, in the US system, we actually have rights for ships. So, you know, in, in, in maritime law or admiralty law, ships regularly sue each other. But that, that doesn't blow our brains usually either. Uh, so it's interesting how we've come to see, you know, culturally these different uh, systems operating and who we assign rights to and who we don't. Corporate personhood goes all the way back, at least in the U.S., officially back to the early 1800s. And so in the early 1800s, corporations began acquiring certain rights that people had within the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and so people are most familiar with free speech rights. Uh, and corporations were given free speech rights in a series of decisions in the 1900s. But suffice it to say, all the rights that we think we have within the U.S. Constitutional Bill of Rights, most of those rights have been given by the courts, specifically the U.S. Supreme Court, to corporate entities to use to strike down laws that we or our communities pass that interfere with those corporate rights. And a lot of times people have problems getting their heads around this because they say, well, corporate person, that's all well and good, but it doesn't really affect me. Well, it does. If your community passes a law that bans factory farms, for example, the agribusiness corporation can come in and sue your municipality, your government, intending that you violated the corporation's rights, specifically that you've taken property from them uh, without paying them for it, which is part of the takings uh, provisions within the U.S. Constitution that people have the right against governments taking their property. A lot of people don't understand that when a permit issues from the state to put in a factory farm, for example, that permit is property. It can be sold. It can be bought. The permit itself is property, the paper itself. And so when a community bans a factory farm, you're actually taking the value of that paper from the corporation. And so the corporation can sue the municipality, which happens often. Generally, the city or town reading the writing on the wall generally caves and says, well, we don't want to be held liable for uh, whatever our cost was to stop the corporation from coming in here. It's all the stuff that happens underneath the surface. You rarely see it because a lot of times these confrontations end before they even start because the elected officials back down from confronting the company. But this is how the U.S. is hardwired. This is how the system works or doesn't work but it works well for certain entities. It doesn't work very well for others. So this concept of corporate rights, corporations having certain rights, goes way back in England, all the way back to the church corporations, You know, way back in the 1600s, 1700s, uh, where churches had certain rights under the law, and uh, most specifically could continue in perpetuity, that's that's one of the rights uh, that a church would have certain rights, church corporation would have certain rights into perpetuity. In many ways, when our founders, you know, the founding fathers 
uh, decided to construct the U.S. Constitution, they draw drew a lot on English precedent, and part of that precedent was about corporate rights. And so, you know, it's a lot of people argue that it's a mistake that corporations have rights somehow in our system. It's not a mistake; it's actually hardwired into the system. The rights of nature stuff. It's it's easier to talk with folks about rights for ecosystems because you have this historical memory of corporations having rights. And sometimes it's easier for people to wrap their heads around it when they say, well, nature can't have rights. It's, it's not a human, it's not a person. Well, welcome to the club, right? Ships have rights, corporations have rights. We don't seem as a system to have a problem giving rights to certain things that we value. Uh, and corporations as economic actors are something the system values highly. So it protects prophylactically with that system of rights that we have within the Bill of Rights. So it's about having a different value system that accords rights to nature and ecosystems rather than corporations. But corporate rights preceded by a long way, these property rights kind of uh, tied up in the US Constitution and given to corporations long before this concept of nature having rights came around, at least to the Western world. And in the Western world, this rights of nature concept basically began back in the 1970s with a U.S. Supreme Court case that, uh, that touched the concept of nature having rights, the ability to go into court to defend itself. Indigenous communities, of course, have understood nature as not being property for thousands of years. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times the Western or white lawyers point to this Supreme Court decision in 1972, just to put an exact year on it in which dissenting opinion was filed by one of the Supreme Court justices, Justice Douglas, who wrote about nature having rights. And that was the first time we saw it in Western jurisprudence. But tribes and indigenous communities have long understood nature as being something other than property or something other than a dead thing. They've treated nature as, as being an, an, an animated uh, process or system. So the Anishinaabe in Minnesota, they talk about the flying people and the swimming people and the singing people, you know, the birds and the fish, they talk about it as part of a family. In the Yurok tribe in Northern California, talks about the Klamath River as being a relative. So it, it's much different to talk in terms of that versus Western civilization concept of nature, which I think is, is, is uh, best put by Sir Francis Bacon, who once said that the job of Western civilization was to torture nature on a rack to extract your secrets. So on one side, you got the swimming people, the singing people, uh, and treating nature as a relative, not as a piece of property, but as something else, something connected to. And on the other side, in Western civilization, you see Western civilization uh, putting nature on a medieval torture device to actually extract her secrets so that we can use it to expand human civilization. That's basically the disjunction here. And of course, our current legal system is based on that Western version of law, not on that indigenous system of law. Our guest today is Rights of Nature attorney Thomas Lindsay of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. He serves as a faculty member of the National Academy of Continuing Legal Education and Lawline. He is a co-founder of the Daniel Pinnock Democracy School, now taught in 24 states, which has graduated over 5,000 lawyers, activists, and municipal officials. And this assists groups to create new community campaigns, which elevate the rights of those communities over rights claimed by corporations. Uh, Lindsay is the author of many books, including 
on community civil disobedience in the name of sustainability. He assisted the Ecuadorian Constitutional Assembly to adopt the world's first constitution, recognizing the independently enforceable rights of ecosystems. He was featured in Tree Media's film, 11th Hour, and We the People 2.0. He's also served as a co-host of Democracy Matters, public affairs radio show broadcast from KYRS in Spokane, Washington. And so are you working on multiple cases at this point? Do you have the one that you're uh, kind of engaged with at the moment? Yeah, so 2021 was a very exciting year in the U.S. for rights of nature work. And the reason for that is that the first rights of nature enforcement cases were filed in U.S. and tribal courts uh, in this country. And up until now, even though the first law passed in 2006 in that little community in Pennsylvania, there hadn't been any direct enforcement cases. These are cases in which nature itself, uh, as a plaintiff in essence, so a river or uh, other ecosystem, would be represented in court in a direct action to stop a certain activity which violated those rights. And the reason why 2021 was so exciting was not only did those first cases be, were brought in the US court system, but also the first cases were filed in a tribal court system. And so just a, a little bit of background, we don't, we don't always think about indigenous communities uh, having their own local governments, but they do. Uh, they're tribal governments uh, that are elected by tribal members. And those tribal governments often have their own tribal courts uh, that deal with a bunch of different issues so that tribal members can have their disputes heard in tribal court rather than going into either state or federal courts. So the first case that was filed uh, to enforce rights of nature provisions was filed in Florida last year. And that case dealt with enforcement of a ballot initiative that was voted on by the people of Orange County, Florida in 2020. So in 2020, if you walked into the voting booth, you saw an issue on your ballot that asked whether certain rivers and waterways in Orange County, Florida should have certain rights. So imagine that walking in, you get your ballot, that's the question on the ballot. Amazingly, the initiative passed by 89% of the vote in this county. And the county is large, it's where Orlando is. So it's a, it's a big metropolitan county, it's 1.5 million people. And that measure passed overwhelmingly, which means it got liberal voters, it got progressive voters, it got Trump voters, it got conservative voters across the board, Basically showing, I think, in many ways, that people, that clean water, uh, which was kind of the, the framework underneath which it ran, kind of a uniting concept among different constituencies across, across the aisle, so to speak. 89% of the people voted it in. It recognized that these rivers had four rights, a right to exist, right to flow, right to maintain a healthy ecosystem, and a right to be free from pollution. Those four rights. And those rights were put into the county charter. So it wasn't just a referendum where it said, hey, how do you feel about this? It was, do you want to amend our county charter, which is like the county constitution of sorts, with this language and with these rights? And the answer was a resounding yes by 89% of the vote. The next year, the project was proposed by a developer in Orange County to put in a new housing commercial development, a 1900 acre big development that would extinguish about 100 acres of wetlands and adversely impact a bunch of other acres of waterways, streams, marshes, those types of things, uh, simply by filling the wetlands were going to be destroyed by filling them in. 
so in Florida, you fill them in, you build houses on top of them. That's the that's been the rate. And in fact, Florida has lost something like 60% of all of its wetlands over the last uh, 100 years or so. So it's a big issue. And so a lawsuit was filed with the wetlands being the plaintiffs. So under this law, this law not only recognizes rights, but actually authorizes affected ecosystems to be plaintiffs in an action against the entity that's violating the rights that are contained within the Orange County Charter. So again, kind of bends our brains not to see a person as a plaintiff, but to see Wild Cypress Branch, which is one of the uh, one of the streams affected by the project, is actually a lead plaintiff in the case. And other plaintiffs include marshes and the wetlands themselves and the other tributaries. So lawsuit was filed last year against this company called Beachline South Residential, which is the company proposing to build the 1900-acre development, as well as the Department of Environmental Protection, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, which has issued a permit to the corporation to put the, put the project in. So the question presented to the court is, can the project proceed and can the permit uh, be valid if the permit was issued and the project that's proceeding violates this Orange County law? This, this charter provision, which provides these rights to these waterways within Orange County. So there's a hearing on that case coming up at the end of April. It's very much active. Uh, uh, briefs are being filed uh, and, uh, and all that stuff is happening with the litigation process. So it'd be interesting to see what decision comes out of that particular court. And then the two other really exciting cases were not filed in state court, like the Florida one, but filed in tribal court. So the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, so the Chippewa in Minnesota, uh, have filed a lawsuit uh, dealing with the rights of wild rights or monomen in, in Ojibwe. And the issue there is the state's issuance of a permit to the Enbridge Corporation to take 5 billion gallons of water from the aquifer for the construction and operation of the Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline, which is bringing oil from Alberta down to the Great Lakes region. Uh, so big Line 3 Enbridge pipeline, a lot of controversy, indigenous communities have been fighting it for eight years. Uh, here, the state decided to let Enbridge use this huge amount of water. Use of that water uh, damages or adversely impacts, threatens uh, the growth of wild rice, which is a cultural imperative for the Ojibwe. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's their central part of, of tribal and cultural affairs in life. And so this case, which is captioned Monoman versus Minnesota Department of, of Natural Resources, Monoman is the actual plaintiff. So it's wild rice versus the state in terms of whether this permit should have been issued or not and whether it should be overturned at this point. mentioned in the uh, the treaty actually the wild rice is mentioned in the, in the treaty does that does that make a difference yeah it actually strengthens their claim so there are, there are two two basic causes of action for the Ojibwe in that case one is based entirely on rights of nature so a law they passed that we helped them write back in 2018 which recognized wild rice as having certain rights and the second piece of that is the treaty that the Chippewa signed with the US government, there have been many, uh, seven principal ones, but more than that, uh, uh, of all kinds. And the, in 1855, the main treaty was signed, which recognized that the Ojibwe, 
even though they were giving away land, ceding territory to the United States as part of the treaty, reserved their hunting, fishing, and foraging rights underneath the treaty. So normally their lawmaking would only impact what's on the reservation. So they only have control, just like a city or a village can pass a law, but technically it only applies within the land within the municipality. Same with the tribe, but the treaty itself gives them certain rights in a much larger area, traditional land or ceded territory land. And the argument is of course, that if you have a right to hunt, fish and forage, you can't exercise that right if the state has taken steps to eliminate the resource upon which that hunting, fishing and foraging uh, is secured. So in other words, it doesn't matter that you have hunting or fishing rights if the state has issued permits to extinguish all of the animals that you would hunt or fish. It just makes logical sense that to exercise the right, you have to have the resource there to exercise the right. What the Ojibwe are arguing is that they have to protect the resource because the state is not. And part of that protection of the resource means trying to nullify these permits that affect wild rice grown not on the reservation, not just on the reservation, but wild rice grown outside the reservation that the Ojibwe also have the legal authority to gather. Uh, and so fascinating case dealing with tribal sovereignty, uh, indigenous control over uh, land within these ceded territories. It's got all kinds of different elements to it, but the rights of nature piece is what gives them the, uh, the base in some ways to augment those treaty powers and actually enforce the stuff outside the reservation land. So that case is, is fascinating. The other part of it, and the reason why it's fascinating is that the state of Minnesota, not wanting to be subject to tribal court jurisdiction over their actions, actually sued the tribe separately in federal court to strip the tribe of jurisdiction, the tribal court of jurisdiction overhearing the case. So the state of Minnesota said, we don't want to live with whatever the tribal court is going to come out with, whatever ruling or decision. So we're going to sue the tribe, they actually sued the judge uh, who was sitting on the case in federal court, district court in Minnesota, U.S. District Court in Minnesota, to try to strip the tribal court of having jurisdiction over this case. So just to show you the lengths, you know, a lot of times progressive activists talk about rights of nature and they poo-poo it. And they're like, well, that's crazy or radical. Well, the state understands the power. Our opponents understand the power of rights of nature laws, even though we don't. You know, our, our allies and our progressive friends, they don't really understand the, the effectiveness of it, but the state and corporations, of course, understand the effectiveness of it. The good news is that the U.S. District Court dismissed the case. The state has appealed that to the uh, federal appellate court, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. There was oral argument in December. We expect a decision to come down uh, soon on whether the federal courts have jurisdiction to strip the tribal court jurisdiction over this case. But that's how crazy things have gotten, is that the state's trying to use federal court to strip the tribe of even hearing a case dealing with their right to forage wild rice or have wild rice exist on the reservation. So that's the, the two, second one of the three good cases filed, first cases filed last year. And the third one, which is not as well known, deals with a tribe called the Sauk Suattle tribe. Uh, which is in Washington state. And the Sauk Suattle tribe in January of this year, so you know, only a couple months ago, filed a lawsuit against the city of Seattle in the name of salmon, contending that salmon's, the rights of salmon to spawn and exist and survive and all those other things were being violated by the existence 
of hydroelectric dams on the Skagit River in Washington State that do not allow for fish passage. So there are three dams, three dams on the Skagit River. None of those dams allow for fish transit, which is the ability of the fish to get past the dam upstream to spawn. So these are older dams, weren't built with fish passage. When you look at the newer dams, some of them have fish, fish passage off to the sides where fish can spawn up over the dam uh, to then move further upstream. The Skagit River dams don't have fish passage. So they've never had fish passage. Salmon populations are now down by 80 to 90% in uh, most of the areas, most of that Skagit River ecosystem. And a lot of folks pin the blame on the fact that the salmon can't get past the dams, which to me is a no-brainer. The salmons can't get past the dams, they can't spawn, and therefore that's one of the reasons why the salmon population is crashing. So the Sauk Suattle tribe filed a lawsuit in the name of salmon, asking their tribal court, the Sauk Suattle tribal court, to rule that salmon has a right to exist and flourish and thrive, and that the dams themselves, unless they offer fish passage, are violating the rights of salmon uh, to actually have those and, and exercise those rights to exist and thrive and flourish and all those things, all those rights that accrue to salmon population. Just with the playbook from the Chippewa, copying that playbook, the city of Seattle sued the Sauk Seattle tribe in federal court to try to stop the Sauk Suattle tribe from having jurisdiction to review the case and issue a ruling. And so that case is still pending, hasn't been decided yet. But the fact that the city who owns the Skagit River dams felt the need to go to federal court to sue the Sauk Suattle tribe itself to stop the tribal court from exercising jurisdiction doesn't come as a surprise to any indigenous communities that we work with because that's the history of the US treatment of tribes in the United States to some extent. But the fact that they would go to federal court to try to strip the tribe or prevent the tribe from ruling in this case, again, shows, I think, how important these rights of nature claims have become, uh, at least in the eyes of some lawyers uh, and the general public and, of course, indigenous communities who've always felt this connection much deeper than just nature as property. And so is there a timeline of some of these cases ultimately uh, approaching the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's a probably protracted, well, it may not be protracted. If the, in the Ojibwe case, well, in all three, let's talk about those prospects. In Florida, uh, the case wouldn't make it to the US Supreme Court because there's no federal claim that the Supreme Court could hear. It's all based in the county charter for Orange County. And so therefore the federal courts wouldn't have jurisdiction over it. So, but there's a chance it might go up to the Florida Supreme Court if the lower courts dismiss the claim, uh, holding that you can't bring a rights of nature claim, that would go up to the Florida Supreme Court. The tribal court cases are different. Both of those could end up in the US Supreme Court. And in fact, could end up there fairly quickly if in the Chippewa case, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals renders a ruling that the tribal court doesn't have jurisdiction over the Monoman or wild rice case, that could be appealed directly then to the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to take the case, which in essence would ask the Supreme Court to uh, kind of define what jurisdiction tribes have over rights of nature claims and treaty claims as well. So that one is probably could be on the fast track. If the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals decides to let the tribal court move forward with the claims, could be a long time before that goes back up in a position for the U.S. Supreme Court, 
The Soxuato case is kind of in the same position, but is trailing the Ojibwe case. If the uh, federal district court decides uh, to uh, uh, strip the tribal court of jurisdiction, could go up to the Circuit Court of Appeals and then up to the U.S. Supreme Court as well, but probably about a year or two on that fast track and probably four or five years on the slower track. Yeah, I mean, what a lot of this comes down to is, like you said, the clean water idea in Florida. I mean, it comes down to really everyone's rights to health. Is there any right to a continued access to a healthful way of living at this point? Radioactive materials, heavy metals, forever chemicals are coursing pretty much through everyone's bloodstream. They're found at the top of the Himalayan mountains. They're in the breast milk of mothers. And, uh, you know, causation on is this exactly what caused your cancer? has always been the hurdle, kind of like intent is another way you can kind of never really prove intent. Is there any tethering of that concern into these cases? Yeah, I think that concern has made its way into the text of the laws themselves. Some, some of the laws use precautionary principle concepts to say that you don't need to prove causation, that it's enough to show a certain environment existed. Uh, to head off that danger. So that's part of the precautionary principle stuff is that we don't have to, we shouldn't have to wait until the harm actually happens. We should be able to start the, stop the harm before it occurs. But the situation is dire. I mean, it's, people think, well, isn't rights of nature a radical concept to which we respond, well, isn't the state of the affairs right now pretty radical itself? You mentioned uh, the, the industrial chemicals that we find in our body. You know, 80 people don't understand also that 80,000 industrial chemicals are in use in the United States today. And, uh, you know, 700 are now found with every, within every human body. So 700 of those industrial chemicals, which you or I never gave permission uh, to actually have within our bodies. So there's a chemical trespass kind of thing happening there as well. But that we've been completely polluted uh, and poisoned by this environment that we, we are in. And you know, it's not just chemicals. You know, half of all plant animal species are now extinct, have been driven to extinction. 90% of original forests have been timbered in the US. Only 40% of waterways meet the minimum clean water standards in the US, that fishable and swimmable standard that's found within the Clean Water Act. Uh, only 40% meet that standard. So the, the real question is, what are we doing? I mean, you know, we're just moving stuff around into different media. You know, it's like how we treat uh, sewage sludge, for example. Won't get into the details, but it's basically about shifting it into the shifting the pollutants into the air, the heavy metals into the air, shifting them into the water, and basically just dispersing them. It's not about stopping them at the source uh, or fixing the situation that we find ourselves in now. And all this doesn't even, you know, talk about climate change, which is the elephant in the room, which is that we seem to be, you know, on track to fry this planet and ourselves with it, and nobody really is taking any meaningful action to stop that. And the international stuff around climate change has really been about negotiating with richer countries and the industries that are uh, that find themselves in those richer countries that use them against the smaller countries which are now feeling the impact of climate change. So I'm I'm not sure what we're doing at, in these traditional conventional venues to deal with the crisis that uh, is on us. It's not emerging. It's not down the road. It's here. It's now. And so, you know, global warming is one thing, global 
uh, poisoning is is a whole nother because that's in essence what we've done to the planet and what we continue to do to it. So the question is what efforts are ours are gonna be commensurate with that huge problem that we face with an understanding that 80% of the public has no idea that it either has no idea that it's happening or couldn't care less that it's happening because it's not directly physically impacting them at this moment. And so that becomes the question is what are we gonna do with our time on this planet uh, to actually put solutions together that are commensurate to the problems that we face because it seems that the folks that we've hired to take care of those problems uh, have uh, failed miserably and are continuing to fail. And uh, what are some of the other cases that have been going on in other countries? I think I've uh, seen some stuff about a river in New Zealand, even the river, river Ganges in India. Can you tell us uh, some about some of those victories or ongoing uh, struggles? Yeah, so this, since the Ecuadorians uh, adopted rights of nature into their national constitution, there's been a bunch of enforcement cases, one around shrimp farming, uh, one about shark fins. Uh, people may not know this, but there's a big industry around catching sharks, taking their fins, putting the dead bodies back in the ocean, and then using shark fins uh, for shipment to Japan, other Asian countries that tend to prize shark fins as part of dishes and, and medicinals and other things. Uh, but rights of nature have been used in a bunch of cases in Ecuador, most recently with that forest reserve case uh, that uh, nullified certain mining permits within that forest reserve. The Ecuadorian Constitutional Court, which is the highest court in the land dealing with constitutional issues, has a couple other cases now pending. So we expect those to be released over the next six months, six to eight months or so. The Ecuadorian experience has really informed these other places. So in India, as you mentioned, the, the Ganges River has been recognized as having certain rights. Uh, that was the decision of a lower court in India, uh, which has since been reversed, uh, but the concept is still there. Uh, so the Ganges River, uh, also the Yamuna River in India was recognized as having rights in Colombia. Uh, the Atrato River, Colombian Constitutional Court in 2016 recognized the Atrato River as having rights. The Colombian Supreme Court uh, has recognized the Amazon and the Amazon River Basin as having rights. Uh, courts in Bangladesh, the High Court, the Supreme Court of Bangladesh, High Court of Bang Bangladesh has ruled that all rivers in the country have rights. In New Zealand, you have this interesting kind of overlap with indigenous management of a forest and a river, the Wanganui, uh, where the Crown uh, government uh, has returned management control back to the uh, to the Maori in New Zealand to actually manage the ecosystem, recognizing that the ecosystem is a person with certain rights. So it's almost indigenous co-management wrapped up with the rights of nature concepts uh, into that, into what's happening in New Zealand. Uh, but it's very exciting. Ireland, uh, recently several local governments passed rights of nature resolutions, which they're now turning into some kind of binding law dealing with rights of nature. Panama, just a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, passed a national law, national rights of nature law uh, in that country. So that's very exciting. And then localities continue in Brazil uh, and other countries to pass local rights of nature laws. But I, I think what we're seeing is this kind of blending of new jurisprudence with lawmaking that eventually is going to produce, you know, a new standard. Uh, keeping in mind that these courts in Colombia and Bangladesh and India, they're not ruling on written laws in front of them. They're actually borrowing concepts from other countries and other courts and bringing them in and then declaring that nature has certain rights. Uh, 
So this isn't all about written textual laws, you know, that have been passed by legislatures. There's also about judicial activism where judges are actively taking these concepts and wrapping them into existing cases. I find that very exciting because legislative change can take a while. It can take a while to draft something, get it through the process, adopt it, and then enforce it, uh, especially in places like Panama, where it can be, you know, a year until you can actually file an enforcement case because that's just the way things operate there. But I think, again, the concept itself is becoming the new emerging uh, international and national jurisprudence around rights of nature issues. Uh, and I think that's going to eventually replace this concept of, of traditional environmental law that we have. And also to note you know, that 20 years ago, when we were talking about rights of nature, you know, people wanted to put us in a padded room uh, because it was a crazy concept, nature having rights. Uh, but today, you know, three law schools have held uh, law school symposia on a rights of nature. And the Democratic Party of Florida has placed rights of nature, support for rights of nature laws into their state platform uh, for Florida. And the Democratic National Committee, I know this is really hard to believe, but the DNC uh, back in uh, 2016 put a plank into their national platform dealing with support for indigenous communities passing rights of nature provisions. And along with that attention, kind of moving from the fringe to at least closer to mainstream thought, uh, is that state governments, unfortunately, have also responded. So in Ohio, as a result of the Lake Erie Bill of Rights passing in the city of Toledo, Ohio used a budget bill to preempt any other municipality in Ohio from passing a rights of nature law. So again, we may not understand the effectiveness of it, but the state legislatures are beginning to. Ohio was the first, Florida was the second. Governor DeSantis has now signed into law a provision that bans cities, towns, counties from adopting rights of nature laws. So the question is, how effective are these to actually force state legislatures to try to stop us from using them at the local level? And I think they're an, an indicator that these are very effective and that the other side understands that they're a danger to continuing to be able to use nature as an externality, continue to pollute, continue to use nature as property or as they see fit. And so I think it's a very interesting time to be involved in this work because of that, that tension between the state and local, basically as a rights of nature slash democracy, pro-democracy approach to having a community be able to protect its own, its own ecosystems and its own natural systems. In some of the cases with the tribes being involved as essentially stewards, do you as lawyers and your organizations effectively stand in that role as a, as a steward, as a, as a representative for these natural entities? Does there need to be some new kind of in-between entity and arbiter to you know be there continually for the management and on the behalf of things like rivers? Yeah, so most of the laws that have been passed in the U.S. don't have that comprehensive kind of approach. What they talk about, at least in the, in the Western municipalities like, uh, like Orange County, Florida, they give the power to any resident of the community to actually step into the shoes of ecosystems to bring those legal actions. So Chuck O'Neill, who created, was one of the creators of a, a statewide organization called the Florida Rights of Nature Network. Uh, is the one that's actually assisting the ecosystems, the waterways as plaintiffs in that case. He's the named individual that's acting as a guardian or trustee. 
In those other cases, actually the tribe itself. So the Soxoatl tribe itself uh, is the entity acting as a guardian for salmon. And in the White Earth case, it's the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, the, the local, the tribal government there, which is operating as a guardian for monoman or wild rice in that case. So basically, I think the understanding of most communities is we want more people, we want as many people as possible to actually step up to be guardians or trustees of these ecosystems. That may change as we go down the road, but right now that's that's pretty much where we are, which is the the, the more people to enforce, the better, because we need more people doing that enforcement action once these laws have been adopted. Yeah, and as you've stated, the pushback and the mental can't wrap their head around it reaction that you generally get when this issue comes up, especially somebody that's had no previous orientation, is that, well, for one, would it go back in the other direction? Could you sue the river for flooding you? And is there any liability like for a tribe to be that guardian and then like finding the balance, where does it exactly stop? Would you prohibit all development, which is what the, you know, the knee jerk assumption becomes that basically all progress is frozen. You can't put anything new in anywhere, new road. What do you say about all that? Yeah, it doesn't affect developments or permits unless those developments or permits adversely affect the entire ecosystem. Because it's the eco, it's the system that has rights, not an individual tree or, or a plant. People in, uh, I remember one place in New England talked about not being able to mow their lawn if a rights of nature law was passed, and and that that's not the that's not the direction. The direction is uh, ecosystems, and as long as you're not taking action that affects the system itself, then you're not running afoul of these laws. And the, the second piece to understand is that. These laws generally are not enforceable against individual people. They're written to be enforceable against governmental units and industry or business entities. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, this would stop me from changing my oil in the car if any oil dripped onto the cement. First of all, that doesn't affect the, the health of the overall system itself, the ecosystem itself. But number two is the fact that these allow for enforcement lawsuits only against those entities, governmental or business entities. That may change in the future, but that's that's the situation now, at least with the U.S. laws. So, you know, we've had we've had pushback in various circles. I remember in New England, a, a meeting one time, some guy stood up and said, well, this means we can't shoot squirrels anymore. And his friend stood next to him and said, no, Earl, it means that we can't shoot all the squirrels, <laughs> which basically the protective mechanism, but it's a systems mechanism, not an individual an individual piece. And so I think it's important to understand that, that that's the reach uh, of it. Having said that, there's development in some places where you can't develop without impacting the ecosystem as a whole. And in those places, it means stopping those projects. We can't build on everything. We can't asphalt over everything. We shouldn't be asphalting over everything. If we care about our own life support systems, we need to stop what we're doing. In some ways, rights of nature laws are tough love which is we're creating a system whereby our own uh, activities are going to be constrained by this system of law that we've created. And I think the Western system is really stuck on this duties, you know, rights come with duties or rights come with responsibilities, which is, is kind of crap when you apply it to certain things like children, children in our system, uh, minors who are afforded a guardian or trustee because they're too young to speak in court. So we automatically place a, a guardian ad litem is what they're known in the court system, somebody to represent the best interest of the child. 
nobody's talking about the, the duty of the child or the responsibility of the child. They're talking about the rights of the child. So rights and responsibilities don't always go together. That's a Western figment. And these laws themselves recognize that explicitly. Most of them build in a section that says, this law shall not create liabilities on behalf of the ecosystem for which uh, this law has been passed to protect. So it exempts out that duty or responsibility stuff where somebody would be you know, suing a volcano or a river, which sounds ludicrous uh, because these laws are intended to protect those ecosystems, not intended to be just a way, another way for humans to extract certain compensation from those ecosystems for normal natural events that occur by virtue of those ecosystems being what they are. And so there are various ways that those, that those concerns are hedged, but we also have to get rid of this concept that rights always come with responsibilities or duties. That may apply to our general constitutional rights construct with people, but it doesn't apply to miners, doesn't apply to ships, doesn't apply to corporations who apparently have no responsibilities or duties that come with those rights either. We have to see these rights of nature laws in the same way. Well, similarly to how corporations have, you know, done their business and calling all these damages externalities that just aren't even in the equation, not part of the bottom line. Those costs are externalized to the community. And I know eco-economists are doing things like tallying the value of ecosystem services. So in a way, these ecosystems are holding their end of the bargain of responsibility and that they are feeding us, watering us, keeping us alive. So in, in a way, they are there. Also a good way of looking at it. And the other word that I, that I hate, as well as externalities, is stakeholders. That somehow we've been reduced from guardians and trustees or even humans to being stakeholders in a process when a project comes in, that's what we're deemed to be. Some kind of stakeholders in the, in the resources, other word I hate is natural resources, uh, but in the resources that the corporation seeking to use, we're treated as mere stakeholders. And so just like we've been reduced to consumers uh, when certain uh, areas of law pop up, you know, thinking like Ralph Nader, you know, the consumer movement treats us as just consumers and our only power is what we buy or what we sell. And so I, I think we've, we've censored ourselves in some ways by using these words and phrases. And we need to understand that nobody else is gonna do what we need to do, it has to be us. And that means standing up in the best, you know, vein of, the suffragists and the abolitionists and other people's movements that came before us who began to violate the system of law because it was unjust. And I think the same thing has to happen around uh, environmental protection because otherwise there's, no, there's nobody else that's going to do it. Our guest today has been attorney Thomas Lindsay, spelled L-I-N-Z-E-Y for those trying to Google him, uh, of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Uh, the website for them is www.centerforenvironmentalrights.org. His forthcoming book, Modern Democracy and Other Fairy Tales, is to be released in the spring of 2023. And I'm hoping we could maybe have you back in a year or so on an, for an update on these things and maybe to discuss that book. Uh, is there anything else you want to relay as we wrap up? No, I think that's it. And if people have heard anything interesting, uh during the show, our job is to assist communities to help draft those laws and defend them and enforce them. We're helping the tribes uh, in their two lawsuits and also the folks in the Florida case. So uh, if you want help uh, moving that direction, that's what we do. So feel free to contact us through the webpage and we'll be happy to help.
yeah, I, I had met you years years back in Indiana, and I don't think you've probably had much success uh, drumming up a case here in Indiana, but uh, maybe this broadcast will elicit some some action. Yeah, and we're happy to come back when uh, whenever there's new developments. Great. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thank you, Zero.